Hello, and thank you for listening to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 39, The Appalachian War, The Philippi Races and the Rich Mountain Campaign. Among all the most significant campaigns fought in the Civil War, the battle for Western Virginia ranks exceedingly high for its long-term impact. And yet, this campaign remains almost forgotten. Most Americans probably don't know it even took place and probably don't understand the circumstances of West Virginia's creation, for it did not exist as a state in 1861. Popular histories quite frequently leap from Fort Sumter directly to Bull Run and completely skip these events, although they shape the political and military course of the conflict. As mentioned several times previously, from the colonial period all the way to 1861, Virginia included a large swath of Appalachian territory, at least on paper, stretching out from the Shenandoah Valley to the headwaters of the Ohio River, and even including a thin slice between Pennsylvania and the state of Ohio, this sizable region had very little to do with the world of plantations. Past the Allegheny Range, separating the eastern seaboard from the Midwest, Western Virginia looked like a rough-hewn country standing on edge, with few roads or rail lines cutting through. Most of its towns clustered in the northwest, or down in the Shenandoah Valley. Those living in the region had a well-earned reputation as almost American even for Americans. The mountain folk were relatively poor, relatively poorly represented in the state seat of power down in Richmond, too. But they thrived up in the hill country, in tough times or good ones, quite often as their fathers and fathers before them had. Yet they did not all stay put. For multiple generations, people from western Virginia had spilled over into what was then the far western frontier of colonial Britain, or later the United States, while in Richmond, few took note of anything up in the hills. Significantly in the Civil War and American history in general, the Appalachians do not represent a single barrier. Rather, they form a series of sharp ridges, but with pastoral valleys often placed in between. Some of these stretch for many miles and cross state borders, too. Awkwardly, however, each range has its own passes and may require changing roads and directions to get through. And these roads, too, were often rougher and less modern compared to roads in the lowlands. One important point, also, is that the railroads just didn't cross much of this landscape except a line stretching from near Cincinnati east to Washington, with a main connection that ran north through Wheeling. This made transshipment of goods easy enough, but it meant that no good pathway existed for either the Union or Confederate troop movements when it came to that. When the secession crisis hit, it soon became obvious, at least anyone who cared to notice, that Western Virginia had very little intention of following the rest of the state out of the Union. A sizable majority of Western delegates refused to vote for secession even after it became obvious they couldn't stop it, and at the point when a show of unity might have been expected. Richmond's control over these lands, never very strong to begin with, evaporated almost overnight. Nonetheless, and in part due to a simplistic misunderstanding of the significance of national identity in the region, many secessionists believed they could call up large numbers of armed Western men rifles in hand, to defend their plantation empires. Robert E. Lee, then in Richmond managing the state's military buildup, had to slap down that notion. Whatever his faults or moral defects on that point, 
Lee comprehended that the Westerners saw themselves much less as Virginians than as Americans. That crucial distinction led to a new crisis that shattered Virginia in two. Lee also understood that raw militia weren't going to win this war, and it turns out they wouldn't win in Western Virginia either. Several issues caused this split, including basic elements of culture. But the hard and basic truth here, that so many refused to see, originated in the simple fact of slavery. Although legal up in the hill country, mountain men had few slaves or plantations. Most of the counties there held fewer than 5% of the population enslaved, and none more than 15. These numbers represented about the absolute floor for slave populations in the rest of Virginia, where enslaved populations averaged far higher and peaked at 70% or more. Given their druthers, mountaineers could quite possibly have done away with the peculiar institution entirely, much the same as Pennsylvania or Ohio. But in addition, they had some long-standing grievances due to the way the lowland Virginians suppressed their political representation. As an example, only those men who owned a valuable plantation or a group of slaves could meet the property requirements for governor. On May 13, 1861, a new secession convention met in Wheeling, Virginia. The choice of this town alone is significant, for it lay not far from Pittsburgh and on the border of Ohio, and comfortably quite far enough from the tidewater. Again, slavery itself was legal here, as in the rest of Virginia, but with free territory in three directions and the Appalachian South, well, it's not hard to guess that the locals had neither interest nor love for the peculiar institution. And with this in mind, would not not be too surprised that the secession under discussion was not severing Virginia from the United States, but severing the western region from Virginia. For the moment, the convention decided against taking that step, but even the most conservative view of the matter refused to ally with Richmond and the Confederacy. That conservative faction simply saw themselves as the proper government of Virginia and intended to continue representing their state in Congress. If some traitors had lately gained power over the rest, that was no great constitutional problem in their eyes. If the Confederates didn't much care for their new national representatives in Washington, D.C., let them lay down the bullets and take up the ballots. Nonetheless, the Wheeling Convention agreed to meet again in June to reconsider the matter, as the SEPs now under consideration were quite literally unprecedented in American history. In the meantime, Lincoln now had, at least, a loose ally occupying the crucial ground between Maryland and Ohio, including the vital rail line across the Appalachian Range. To support their ballots with a few bullets of his own, however, he appointed George Brinton McClellan to command over the Department of the Ohio. At the very start of the war, McClellan immediately demonstrated clarity of thought, clarity of action, and clarity of organization, when he capably assisted Ohio Governor William Dennison Jr. in organizing the state militiamen. And when the Wheeling Convention met in May, Dennison ordered McClellan and his troops to stand guard. Despite technically being a violation of state sovereignty, the Wheeling delegates expressed gratitude instead of outrage. And with Dennison's support, plus some judicious lobbying from the former governor, who, by an absurdly fortunate coincidence, just so happened to be Salmon P. Chase, now serving as Lincoln's Secretary of the Treasury, McClellan not only received his appointment to the Ohio Command, but also promotion to Major General 
As such, at that strange moment, he outranked the entire army, General-in-Chief Winfield Scott alone accepted, a meteoric rise indeed. Few men demonstrated more promise for such a command, and perhaps only Robert E. Lee and Irving McDowell even appeared his equal on paper. Born in 1826, McClellan had only graduated from West Point when he received orders sending him to the just-declared Mexican-American War. Like Lee, his engineering background counted for less in the actual moments of warfare than his courage and energy, and he even undertook risky scouting missions. General Winfield Scott took the young man under his wing, and McClellan looked up to Scott as a surrogate father, or perhaps a beloved uncle. Later in life, McClellan consciously or unconsciously molded himself on Scott, even when they came into conflict. After the war, McClellan decided to remain in military service instead of leaving for civilian employment. In fact, he spent many of the intervening years traveling the West and visited, more or less, the entire country, from Delaware to Oregon to the desert southwest. In fact, then-Secretary of War Jefferson Davis personally selected him for several significant scouting missions, representing the high esteem that McClellan had earned. These posts included more than merely domestic duties. First came a delicate mission to Santo Domingo, which we are not even going to begin trying to explore today. The important point here is that it was a very high-profile task with the attention of the cabinet. Then, in 1855, McClellan, who boasted an excellent command of French, found himself selected as one of three official observers for the United States of the Crimean War, a grinding conflict in the 1850s between Russia and Turkey that expanded to include England and France. While some modern developments certainly impacted the war, including a short railway thrown up to supply troops, it was mostly fought along Napoleonic lines and included vast systems of fortifications. McClellan witnessed part of the nightmare siege of Sevastopol, a single year-long battle of attrition which saw over 200,000 casualties. McClellan apparently never forgot the horrors of that scene, and it influenced his views of the importance of sieges and the desire to avoid as much bloodshed as possible. And these were, in turn, reinforcements of the lessons of the Mexican-American War, where vigorous flank attacks and aggressive assaults quickly overwhelmed defenses without prolonged misery. His achievements, however, did not end there. McClellan's military career included translating a French text on bayonet fighting and the invention of the McClellan saddle, a simple but robust piece of equipment well-suited to service on the frontier. McClellan developed it from the example of Cossack saddles, which he encountered in Crimea. The War Department, suitably impressed with the design, duly adopted it for service in 1859. The saddle would actually remain in military service as late as World War II. McClellan finally decided to end his long and rather successful military career in 1857, following which he became a railroad president, basically a modern CEO, and had no less success there than he had in uniform. His only problem was, ironically, too little excitement. He simply did not find the peacetime business challenging enough and longed for true military glory. The Civil War gave him that chance at last, and the man who had never known failure would eagerly face his greatest test. Now we will return to explore McClellan's life and this specific period within it, because it's a fascinating dive into a man's personal story, his character with both strengths and weaknesses, and the bizarre political dance in the early months of arming the nation. But in pursuit of moving towards the military events, we are going to advance to the moment 
when McClellan begins his push into western Virginia and see the results. On May 26, 1861, McClellan launched a regiment south from Wheeling with the intent of capturing Grafton, where a band of Confederate militiamen had gathered. Additionally, he also set in motion a brigade from southern Ohio eastward to the same site. Ideally, this combined movement would surround the small Confederate force placed at Grafton, or at least force it to retreat. Now, Grafton was a position worth controlling. Although not exactly centrally located in the region as a whole, it was about halfway between Wheeling and Staunton, and perilously close to the rail lines west of Washington. Thus, although not especially significant in itself, the town represented near enough the axis of movement in the region, and thereby of military power. It was vital for federal forces to control it, whether or not they could make further use of this location otherwise. At Grafton, Confederate Colonel George Porterfield commanded around 750 men, with an equal number technically under arms but so uninterested or undisciplined that they failed to even turn up for a fight. Recognizing the hopelessness of his position, he backed down. At the start of June, Porterfield retreated 15 miles south of Grafton when he discovered that the 3,000 and more Federals advancing on his position had already united, making them effectively invulnerable to any attack he could hope to mount. Recognizing that his position was fast becoming hopeless, Colonel Porterfield packed up his wagons at the village of Philippi and prepared to retreat even further southward, where he could find reinforcements and support. On the night of June 3rd, however, the retreat received a bit of a problem. During a driving rainstorm, the Federal force advanced. Night marches are a tricky business in the best of circumstances, and in such rough conditions even harder. However, Brigadier General Morris and Colonel Kelly kept onward and had their troops in place to attack at dawn. This might not have worked either, except the Confederate pickets decided that standing watch in the rain was just too much trouble, and went into town to find warmth and shelter. To be fair, Colonel Porterfield saw the driving rain and believed that no such federal advance could have been practical himself. Nonetheless, he did give orders for a strong picket guard that were simply not obeyed. Thus, when the Federals opened up with cannon fire at dawn's first light, the confused Confederates immediately descended into chaos. That being said, Colonel Porterfield showed his steel. He quickly adapted with shocking speed, reorganized his force even while under fire, and got his column moving on the road south. However, the Confederates remained vulnerable, and might have been cut off or at least repeatedly attacked from the rear, when by chance Colonel Benjamin Kelly of the Union's 1st Virginia took a bullet and went down. The resulting lack of leadership took the wind out of the Federal sails, and the attack stalled. Nevertheless, the Federal troops captured Confederate war material and drove the retreating Southerners another 40 or 50 miles on their way. As a side note, Kelly additionally survived his wound and would go on to prove himself in future roles as a quietly competent leader. He wore a major general's insignia by war's end. The military consequences of the Philippi races, as the press dubbed the battle, remained, well, inconsequential. However, by hurling the Confederates almost out of the mountains entirely, the Union men greatly relieved much of the pressure on Washington 
and virtually eliminated the threat to rail lines, except at Harper's Ferry. The battle encouraged Western Virginia's Unionist sentiment and made mockery of Confederate pretensions. It emboldened the renewed Wheeling Convention to appoint their own governor for their territory and set them on a course of permanent separation from Virginia. It also forced the Confederates to immediately reinforce their position or risk being overwhelmed in short order. Richmond responded to the threat on their left flank by dispatching fresh troops in arms under Brigadier Robert S. Garnett. General Garnett, though depressed by the loss of his family in an unrelated tragedy, quickly proved he was the right man for the job, although victory ultimately eluded him. A strict disciplinarian, and with better supplies and more motivated soldiers in Porterfield, he drilled his men thoroughly and positioned them well. The only problem lay in the fact that the Union buildup went on even faster, so his 6,000 faced as many as 20,000 fresh northern troops. Still, Garnet placed his soldiers on two major strong points, on Rich Mountain and Laurel Mountain, and that might prove the difference. This gave him the advantage of extremely defensible terrain, which would limit the strength of any attack that developed. Combined, these two locations completely guarded the roads towards Staunton, and the Confederate rear, and thereby presented a powerful shield for Richmond to delay and recover the initiative. There was only one significant problem with the selected ground. The two mountains lay far enough apart that neither could easily and quickly support the other in case of attack. In theory, these mountains occupy a single, long-running ridgeline of the Appalachian Range. In practice, the landscape was all cut up with valleys and mountains and forested movement between the two would turn into a difficult indirect march, descending and ascending, in a landscape with unclear geography and few roads. For the next few weeks, very little happened on this front. However, General McClellan finally finished training replacements for the early 90-day men who just mustered out of service and advanced his greatly augmented army to Grafton. McClellan put in place as many soldiers just to guard his communications as Garnet had in his whole command, and still another 15,000 effectives in the field besides. McClellan's plan, simple enough, was to detach a small force to watch the northern Confederate position at Laurel Mountain, threatening the Confederates there and holding them in place. Meanwhile, he would lead three full brigades to maneuver around the Rich Mountain position at the south, and circle the enemy there and force his surrender. If all went according to plan, it would become a replay of Cherogordo. However, McClellan unwittingly got one part of the situation reversed. He believed that the bulk of Garnet's command occupied Rich Mountain, whereas it was more of an outpost with somewhat more than a thousand soldiers placed there. This inadvertently created a situation could quickly inflict a defeat in detail on Garnet's divided force. This did come at the risk of exposing part of his own force to the same. Although McClellan launched his campaign on June 30th, it took him over 10 days to march 35 miles. Though this was a mountainous country, that kind of speed did not indicate great haste even under present difficulties, nor was this a grueling march far from supplies. McClellan, however, did not want to rush things when he saw no real time pressure, and at least for the moment he was correct for the Confederates had few, if any, troops to spare reinforcing Garnet. Once at Rich Mountain, the Union army ran into an unexpectedly strong show of resistance. 
The Confederate position was a powerful one, and they pushed back Union skirmishers effectively. McClellan, stymied for the moment, ran into the kind of unique luck that sometimes occurs in war. This also happened right before he attempted a lengthy artillery bombardment that would have wasted time and munitions, possibly for little gain. One of the three brigadier generals in McClellan's army was William S. Rosecrans. Now one day we'll go into more detail on old Rosie, but for now, just know that he was yet another engineer from West Point. However, unlike most, Rosecrans really dived into engineering as a discipline, and after serving in the Mexican-American War, went on to manage several businesses, invent mechanical devices, and even designed St. Mary's Church in Newport, Rhode Island. An Ohioan by birth, despite a well-traveled career, he emerged from successful obscurity to assist McClellan in organizing the state militia into a real army. And, although not considered a top-ranked soldier beforehand, he also demonstrated the ability to take opportunities when he found them. Just as the Union campaign at Rich Mountain began to stall, in the face of, let us remember, only a thousand Confederates, a local farmer loyal to the Union by the name of David Hart knocked on Rosecrans' door, metaphorically speaking, with some rather welcome news. There was a back road up to the Confederate position. This may require some small explanation. The United States in 1860 was hardly mapped at all, excepting some major highways and railroads and the like. The War Department, for one, never considered the idea of civil war until it became inevitable, and so nothing like professional maps or land surveys existed except as had been made in various county offices or printed by individual map makers. Private paths and byways existed all over the country, and most were hardly marked or noticed except by those who owned or used them regularly. David Hart's father, however, had a farm on Rich Mountain, and thus he knew the land quite well. Rosecrans showed the great enthusiasm he never lacked, and volunteered for a flanking assault. If successful, he would effectively win the battle on the spot. If not, McClellan would still have a substantial advantage. Now, although he didn't like the idea of a night march, McClellan authorized the adventure. Thus, well before dawn on July 11th, Rosecrans and 2,000 soldiers swung around the base of Rich Mountain. Of course, a reasonable path for a single man, or a cart, might turn into agonizing slow going for a couple regiments on the march, and it was not until noon that Rosecrans even emerged on the Confederate flank. Here, they ran into their second stroke of luck. Earlier, the Confederates had captured a Union sergeant, who let slip that an attack was on the way. Believing the threat would fall on his right, however, Lieutenant Colonel John Pegram, in command of the Confederates, reinforced that flank. But Rosecrans' path carried him to the Confederate left flank instead. By 2.30 p.m., Rosecrans finally organized an attack, which almost immediately ran into trouble. The force had provided stiff cover when building up to the engagement, but now obstructed his troops, who could neither see clearly nor form an orderly assault. And for the rookie Federal soldiers, attacking took more courage and discipline than that needed by the equally green defenders, who at least had some field works erected to encourage their morale and stabilize their lines. Plus, though the Confederates had only one cannon, the artillery rammed home shells as fast as they could, shocking the northern boys, who had never faced up to explosive shells before. However, all was not lost, 
The Union soldiers couldn't see, amidst the brush, that some of their own units were working around the Confederate flanks. And ironically, the very fact that the Confederate fire drove them back soon won the day. Seeing the Union blue retreating towards the tree line and finding cover, the Confederates attempted to charge. However, no sooner was this done than Rosecrans saw his chance. The moment the Confederates emerged into the open themselves, they also opened themselves to a murderous counter-volley that swept the field. Those units struggling through the brush on the sides then joined in, creating a deadly crossfire. By five in the afternoon, Rosecrans had effectively won the day and quickly occupied the Confederate defenses. This cornered Pegram's remaining command under intolerable pressure, as Rosecrans held the front lines and McClellan the other. This, however, represented the only failure of the battle. All morning, McClellan waited nervously for the sounds of Rosecrans' guns on the attack. He rode back and forth, and did nothing at all. As it happens, McClellan failed to even support a subordinate. He could have launched an attack, or if not, hit the Confederates with artillery or skirmished aggressively to draw their attention. But he did nothing of the sort, even as his soldiers practically twitched with the desire to fight. McClellan just rode back and forth, listening to the sounds of battle, and stopped any man who strode up to go into the fight. Now, in the end, it didn't matter. Rosecrans held the field, and Pegram then snuck out under cover of night. Yet had Garnett's main force been emplaced at Rich Mountain, as McClellan believed, it would most likely have turned into a one-sided slaughter from the sheer weight of numbers. Indeed, reports from the force sent to wave the flag at Laurel Mountain clearly indicated that the bulk of the Confederate army lay there instead, but McClellan dismissed them. He even laughed that the officer in charge was clearly exaggerating and dispatched only minor reinforcements to support, which is all a bit ironic given McClellan's own later predilection for wildly overestimating the size of the opposition. For his part in the matter, Pegram would surrender a few days later after failing to cut his way through the hills to Laurel Mountain. Yet that was sheer bad luck instead of any skillful deployment by McClellan. The latter should have prevented Pegram from even attempting to escape the battlefield altogether. Instead, Pegram was simply unable to find a pathway through the rough and winding terrain, defeated by the mountains, not McClellan. Nonetheless, the campaign quickly turned into a near route for the Confederacy. Stunned at losing Pegram's force so quickly, General Garnett decided not to allow a similar fate for his outnumbered command. With the Union force advancing boldly from Wirich Mountain, and the demonstration force already in his front and quickly turning their flag-waving into a much more menacing attack, Garnett fell back to the Cheat River. There, he aimed to put up a defense and bloody the nose of the brigade following his trail, commanded by General Morris. There, a sharp skirmish erupted, and General Garnett recalled some retreating soldiers to hold the line. During this quasi-battle, Garnett, commanding the rearguard defenses himself while the reinforcements doubled back to join them, noticed his aide-de-camp duck to avoid a Union volley. General Garnett didn't move, instead remarking grimly that one could never duck in time to dodge a bullet. A moment later, his comment proved horrifically accurate as a shot slammed home. Garnett died instantly, and perhaps we may hope he found some peace with his family in death. He had in fact commented before taking his command that he believed he was going to die. 
whether premonition or depression. His words proved all too accurate. This campaign, such as it was, ended with a crushing and complete Union victory. In fact, General Scott, back in Washington, issued orders to hold up McClellan in order to make sure that he didn't push too far out and end up vulnerable to counterattack or outrun his limited supplies, given the very long distances needed for wagon trains over mountain roads. This did give the Confederacy time to recover, and they would eventually make one more attempt to take and hold western Virginia. In the end, however, the loss simply couldn't and would be made good. The Union could much more easily move troops into West Virginia from Ohio and Pennsylvania and even from Maryland. Besides, the mountains cutting off the region from the rest of Virginia remained difficult to cross, and the locals too unfriendly to rule from Richmond anyhow. For the Union, the only downside of victory in western Virginia was that it failed to allow them the means to develop a follow-up attack. The same terrain that defended Columbus, Wheeling, and Pittsburgh from Confederacy made it impractical to invade along that front, as General-in-Chief Scott correctly understood. Instead, the main game was to remove a threat from that quarter and secure the railroads. However, in the long run, the most significant impact for the war itself lay in two men, McClellan and Rosecrans. Rosecrans will soon go on to take up command in the Western Theater, where he will prove himself instrumental in several key victories, although he will also demonstrate an irascible streak and come into conflict with his superiors, whomever they might be. But McClellan, with an impressive winning record, shall receive a far greater prize, command of the Army of the Potomac. For the Union Army is about to blunder at Bull Run, and Lincoln will need a tough-minded organizer to reinstate discipline. There was just that one unfortunate little detail. Did McClellan win at the Philippi races? No. Did McClellan win at Rich Mountain? No, Rosecrans won it for him. Had McClellan ever actually fought a battle yet? Now, as a minor side note, let us discuss the fate of Colonel Porterfield. Relieved of command following the runaway scrape at Philippi, he faced a court-martial in Richmond. And although technically his ultimate reprimand was relatively light, he did not take it very lightly. From his perspective, Richmond had assigned him a tiny band of lazy, barely-armed, disinterested militia, and assumed they would fight like hardened veterans with modern equipment against a vastly superior force. And his views were essentially true. The court-martial more or less acknowledged that he had done his best with bad material, or at least soldiers whose loyalty to Virginia and the Confederacy was inherently suspect. But Robert E. Lee made sure to censure Porterfield. And although the man took up another post, a reorganization left him without any position. Bitter of the obvious snub, Porterfield resigned from service and retired to a private life at home in West Virginia. The Union Army briefly took him prisoner, but decided in the end that his actions merited no particular punishment. Porterfield intended no more mischief, so they allowed him to go home. It appears that he spent his remaining years in happy and quiet obscurity. His treatment by the Confederates really was rather unfair, given that far larger mistakes by men with far more advantages would go unremarked later in the war, including not a few by General Lee, among others. Down the line, too, Robert E. Lee will discover for himself the impossibility of holding West Virginia, and will, for his trouble, receive plum commands instead of censure. 
This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.